Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Ezra chapter one. Well, after an extensive introduction, we're going to open the book of Ezra for the first time today. Now, it's a short chapter, chapter 1, but we're going to go into some detail in it that will help us the rest of the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. First, however, to keep things in perspective, to put the proper spiritual tone on matters, I'm going to quote from H.G.M. Williamson, the author of the Ezra and Nehemiah commentary of the Word Biblical Commentary series. Now, the Word Biblical Commentary is probably the most respected biblical commentary of our time, as it has the most up-to-date information and findings of anything out there. The only problem with it is that it is designed more for scholars. And it assumes some understanding of Greek and Hebrew and a little Latin. But here is the quote I'm speaking of. The destruction of of the Jerusalem temple in 587 or 586 BC at the end of the Davidic rule and the exile of a large part of the population to Babylon were events of unprecedented significance in the development of the faith and of the literature of the Old Testament. Many and varying responses to them are recorded, and in their wake is to be traced the transition for the religion of Israel to that of Judaism. Initially, it is clear that the experience of judgment led to the sensation of disorientation and discontinuity and a radical break from the past. That statement is one that might sound a little highbrow, but it's only saying the same thing I have told you the past two lessons, just using a little less academic vernacular. It is that Judaism was born during the Babylonian exile of the Jews. And it marks a dramatic turning point in Israel's history as their deliverance from Egypt did and of the receiving of the law on Mount Sinai did. What Williamson labels the religion of Israel, I gave the name Hebrewism. And Hebrewism is the religion that God gave to Moses and the Israelites, and it is expressed in the obedience to Torah and in its ritual expressions and sacrifices that were to be practiced at the temple in Jerusalem. However, upon their exile to Babylon, the people of Judah obviously couldn't do that any longer because they were removed from their promised land, their indispensable priesthood was disbanded, and then the temple of Jehovah, the house of God, was reduced to rubble. So in Babylon and then Persia, they reinvented their religion that worshipped Jehovah, God of Israel, and now it would center around non-priests and worship and ritual would be conducted at multiple locations called synagogues and prayer would replace sacrifice as a means to atonement. And since the people of Judah 
It was the people of Judah who ex, uh, invented this new religious expression. It was given the name of Judaism, the religion of Judah. Now I introduced a timeline to you last week that we're going to refer to throughout our journey of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I need a little flexibility from you because I readily admit that the dates I have selected might be off a year or two, maybe three, either later or earlier than is depicted on this chart. So those dates you probably ought to take as midpoints. They're kind of splitting the difference between the higher and the lower end of the range. Dates from this era are most difficult to pin down because they're not based on calendars. Because calendars, as we think of them, weren't in use. But rather, dates were based upon the reigns of various kings. And so first, an assumption has to be made as to when each king reigned before we can then determine what date an event happened because invariably that event is defined in the relationship to one year or another of a certain king's reign. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. But not to worry. This chart is very close according to everything known currently. Therefore, the last, last time I used the events contained in the book of Esther to try to give us a pretty good grasp on how to mentally picture when it was that the Jews were first freed from their Babylonian captivity to when the first wave of Jewish returnees arrived back in Jerusalem to when the temple was rebuilt to when Ezra arrived to when Nehemiah showed up to reconstruct the defensive outer walls of Jerusalem. And besides serving the purpose of helping us to get a better idea of the timing of these events, I also meant it to illustrate the spiritual condition and the general religious outlook and practices of the Jews who were now living in the Persian Empire. And what we saw in Esther and in her stepfather Mordecai was that they still loved and were loyal to the God of Israel, yet something seemed to be missing. The temple had been rebuilt. It was already functioning in Esther's day. But there was no desire expressed by any of the Esther characters to return to Judah. Further, when we studied Esther, we found that in the original Hebrew text there was not one mention of God. Thus some later Greek additions tried to add in what no doubt troubled some of the Jewish religious leadership who read Esther's story. I think we might now begin to understand why God wasn't mentioned. Why there is no praying either even though the Greeks added some to it. The Jews were in a dramatic religious transition. All of the icons and rituals and appointed times, Sabbaths, the Levite leadership that's ordained by the Torah, which had served for so many centuries to build a, a fence 
of protection around the Jews so that they stayed near to God were dissolved. The Jewish response? They built new icons. They chose new rituals. They created new appointed times, such as Purim. They elected new leadership that all worked together for their circumstances. And as Professor Williamson said, the changes weren't nipping about at the edges of their former religion. The changes were radical. And not surprisingly, most Jews who had been raised in Babylon and Persia under this transition were generally satisfied with these new practices and traditions and they didn't feel any sense of inadequacy or even loss. However, some did. Some like Ezra, a Levite priest by heritage, but who had no means to utilize his God-given heritage in Persia. These folks were greatly bothered. and They were worried because they fully understood that what they were practicing up in Persia might be fulfilling some human sense of need for religion and comfort. But oh, it was way off track and it bore little resemblance to what God had ordained. Now for those who have ears to listen, please hear. Comfort and familiarity and majority consensus is not the measure of the appropriateness of our religious practices and beliefs. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1117. 1117. In the first year of Korish, king of Persia, in order for the word of Adonai prophesied by Yermiel, Jeremiah, to be, pro- to be fulfilled, Adonai stirred up the spirit of Korish, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his whole kingdom, which he also put in writing as follows. Here is what Korish, king of Persia, says. Adonai, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms on earth, and he has charged me to build, a, build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, May his God be with him. He may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of Adonai, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, no matter where he lives, be helped by his neighbors with silver, gold, goods and animals in addition to the voluntary offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. The heads of fathers' clans in Judah and Benjamin, along with the Kohanim, the priests and the Levites, and indeed all whose spirit God had stirred, set out to go up and rebuild the house of Adonai in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them by giving them articles of silver, gold, goods, animals, and valuables besides all their voluntary offerings. In addition, Korsh the king brought out the vessels from the house of Adonai which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the house of his god. Korsh king of Persia had Mithridat, the treasure, bring them out and make an inventory of them for Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. 
The list was as follows. Gold basins, 30. Silver basins, 1,000. Knives, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Silver bowls of a different kind, 410. Other vessels, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar took all of them along with the exiles when they were brought up from Babel to Jerusalem. The editor of Ezra puts a solid stake in the ground to give us a date as a starting point for the events of this book. It was in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia that the Jews were freed and encouraged to go back to Judah if they wished to. Now there's much here in the first verse that needs to be fleshed out. Just as the book of Esther gives us a a hand in understanding time frames and the sequence of events, so can the book of Daniel provide needed context for studying Ezra. In Daniel chapter 10, we read this, starting at verse 1. In the third year of Koresh, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, also called Belshazzar, and the word was certain, a great war. He understood the word, having gained understanding in the vision. King Koresh is Hebrew for King Cyrus. And here we see that two years after Cyrus freed the Jews and around one year after this first wave of Jewish returnees went back to Judah, that's when Daniel received his vision of a great war that is apparently still future to us. But if you back up one chapter to Daniel chapter 9, we also read this. In the first year of Dariavesh, Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, King Xerxes of Persia, a Mede by birth who was made king over the kingdom of the Kastim of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, was reading the scriptures and I was thinking about the number of years which Adonai had told Jeremiah the prophet would be the period of Jerusalem's desolation. Seventy years. So, the third year of King Cyrus is the first year of King Dariavesh, Darius, who was a Mede. Darius was a Mede. He was not a Persian. And as we learned back in our study of the book of Daniel, see it's important we study these books in order and get all this information or this stuff is hard to figure out. When we learned in our study of the book of Daniel, for whatever political reason that seemed best for the Persian Median alliance, a Mede named Darius was put in charge of Babylon. Meaning, mainly the area of the capital city of Babylon, which was Babel, and probably many of the provinces that were under Babylon's control before the Medes and Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire. Now recall that the Persians already had a substantial empire growing before they conquered and acquired the Babylonian Empire, which of course was then added to the Persian land holdings, creating the largest empire that had ever existed. However, 
how can it be, follow me, how can it be that in the third year of King Cyrus, Daniel was praying, wondering when the 70 years would be up, when we're told that in the first year of King Cyrus, according to Ezra 1.1, he already signed the proclamation to free the Jews. Hmm. You see the problem? This is why using the dates of king's reigns can be so problematic. But here is probably the answer to this particular dilemma. In the case of comparing Darius's reign to Cyrus's and Daniel's statement to Ezra's, the reference to the number of years Cyrus, Cyrus was reigning, that had to do with when he became the media Persian king as opposed to when he also then eventually became the king over Babylon. He became the king of Persia before he attacked Babylon. After he attacked Babylon and conquered it in roughly 539 B.C., Then from the Babylonian perspective, now remember, Daniel was in Babylon. That was the first year that Cyrus was their king. Thus the Jews and the other residents of Babylon would likely have a different way of counting the number of years of Cyrus' reign than the Persians would have. So once again, don't hold me too tightly to the dates I quote. It could, we could be off a year or two. However, the writer of Ezra was not only concerned with getting the historical happenings properly recorded, he also wanted to make it clear that what happened was all part of God's plan for His people. Thus we are told that the Lord intervened and He stirred up Cyrus's spirit so that he would be disposed to show kindness and tolerance and favor to the Jewish people. We have yet another instance of the Lord directly dealing with Gentiles and more proof that he is God not just of the Hebrews but of everyone. Further, God stirring up Cyrus's spirit to act we're told, was so that the words of the prophet Jeremiah would come about, just as all biblical prophecy invariably proves to be true because God has willed it. But which of Jeremiah's many oracles and words are being referenced here? Let's take a look at some of them. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, this is page 590. Jeremiah chapter 25, page 590. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're just going to read the first 14 verses. This is the word that came to Yermiao. Jeremiah, concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, 
the son of Yoshial, king of Judah. This was also the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel. Jeremiah the prophet proclaimed it before all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, since the 30th year of Yoshial, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, until today, the word of Adonai has come to me. And I have proclaimed it to you on numerous occasions, but you haven't listened. Moreover, Adonai sent you all of his servants, the prophets, again on numerous occasions, but you didn't pay attention or listen. The message was always, every one of you turned back from his evil way, from the evil of your actions. Then you will live in the land Adonai gave you and your ancestors forever and forever. Don't allow other gods by serving and, and, and worshiping them. Don't provoke my anger with things your own hands have made. Then I'll do you no harm. But you wouldn't listen to me, says Adonai, so that you could provoke me with the products of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, here is what Adonai Zevod says. Because you haven't paid attention to what I've been saying, I'm going to send for all the families of the north, says Adonai, and for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, and bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them, making them an object of horror and ridicule, a perpetual ruin. <clears throat> Moreover, I will silence among them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bridegroom and bride, the grinding of millstones and the light of lamps. This entire land will become a ruin, a waste. And these nations will serve the king of Babel for 70 years. But when the 70 years are over, I will punish the king of Babel and that nation for their sin. This is Adonai, and I will turn the land of the Kostim, the Chaldeans, into everlasting ruins. I will inflict on that land all my words that I have decreed against it, everything written in this book, in which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations, for they too will become slaves to many nations and to powerful kings. I'll pay them back according to their deeds and the work of their own hands. So now that we've progressed so far as we have into Israel's history, here in Jeremiah we're looking back to a time before Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, but only a few months before. Because Nebuchadnezzar's first year was probably 606 B.C. It's reckoned here that that beginning here, rather, was the exile, was when the exile started. Because the first foray of Nebuchadnezzar into Judah occurred then. And as a result, the first wave of Jews were sent to Babylon then. Mainly, it was just the elite Jews who were taken this first time. So, Jeremiah also reckons that the Jews are going to be in exile for 70 years. 70 years later from 606 B.C. would be 536 B.C. 
And since most Bible scholars say that Cyrus's decree to free the Jews to go home was in 538 BC, that's awfully close to 70 years. Now, how precise the 70 was meant to be down to the exact year, the exact month, the exact day, we can't be sure. In fact, it's entirely feasible that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah in what our modern calendars would call 607 B.C. And that it was in 537 B.C. that Cyrus's decree was given. Or... Maybe God didn't figure so much on the date that the royal decree was given by Cyrus as on the date that the first Jews actually left Babylon to go back home from captivity. Or maybe it was counted as the date they arrived in Jerusalem, which was about four months later. So maybe the year turned. So we have to be a little bit careful when we try to whip out our calculators and try to make the 70 years work Perfectly, Because once again, we're trying to correlate uncertain dates of kings to uncertain dates of events and trying to determine how exactly God sees it. And then trying to convert all that into a precise Roman calendar date. Good luck. Nonetheless, Jeremiah certainly had it right. And Babylon was conquered by another empire, the Persians. And interestingly, this overthrow of Babylon was a prophesied punishment for Babylon being too harsh on God's people, the Jews. But as amazing as was Jeremiah's accuracy, the prophet Isaiah's was jaw-dropping. At least Jeremiah lived during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and of the exile. And in fact, it's thought that he died in the same year as when the temple was destroyed, 586-587 BC. And in some ways, was reporting on current or near-term events to him. Isaiah, on the other hand, was born in the mid-700s BC. And he witnessed Assyria decimate the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel until its capital of Shamron, Samaria, fell in 722-723 BC. He seems to have died around 680 BC. But he had the most amazingly accurate predictions concerning Judah being exiled and then even about Persia freeing them that have caused the text-critical scholars to just throw up their hands and assume this whole thing must be a Jewish hoax and a fraud because it's impossible for anyone to predict something that would happen at least a century later and to depict the circumstances and even call out names with such precision. Here are especially the passages that flummox them and at the same time ought to awe believers. In Isaiah 44, 21, starting with, uh, 44, starting with verse 21. Keep these matters in mind, Yaakov, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. Israel, don't forget me. Like a thick cloud, I wipe away your offenses. Like a cloud, your sins. Come back to me, for I have redeemed you. 
Sing, you heavens, for Adonai has done it. Shout, you depths of the earth. Mountains, break out into song along with every tree in the forest. For Adonai has redeemed Jacob. He glorifies himself in Israel. Here's what Adonai says. Your Redeemer, He who formed you in the womb, I am Adonai who makes all things, who stretched out the heavens all alone, who spread out the earth all by Myself. I frustrate false prophets and their omens. I make fools of diviners. I drive back the sages and make their wisdom look silly. I confirm my servants' prophecies and make my messengers' plans succeed. And I say of Jerusalem, she will be lived in. Of the cities of Judah, they will be rebuilt. I will restore their ruins. I say to the deep sea, dry up. I'll make your streams run dry. I say of Koresh, Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will do everything I want. He will say of Jerusalem, you will be rebuilt. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Isaiah 45.1 Thus says Adonai to Koresh, Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand he has grasped, so that he subdues nations before him and strips kings of their robes, so that doors open in front of him and no gates are barred. I'll go ahead of you, leveling the hills, shattering those bronze gates, smashing the iron bars. I will give you treasures hoarded in the dark, secret riches hidden away, so that you will know that I, Adonai, calling you by your name, am the God of Israel. It is for the sake of Jacob my servant, yes, for Israel my elect, that I call you by your name and give you a title, although you don't know me. I am Adonai, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am arming you, although you don't know me. So that those from the east and those from the west will know that there is none beside me. I am Adonai, there is no other. I have no words that can express what an astounding prophecy we have here. Isaiah not only predicts that Judah will return from a foreign exile, which they're a hundred years from even beginning, but here he says that the king who will free his people and send them back to Judah to rebuild the temple is named Cyrus. And of course, some 150 to 200 years later, we are reading in the book of Ezra the account of a king named Cyrus doing exactly that. Now moving on to verse 2. We have a record of the emancipation decree that Cyrus made. And the opening statement begins, Here's what Koresh, Cyrus, king of Persia, says, Adonai, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms on earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem and Judah. This is how the complete Jewish Bible reads. But if you have some other English translation, it'll be similar. It'll say something like, Here's what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and so on and so forth. The point is, the, Hebrew, the original Hebrew does not use the word Adonai, does not use the word Lord, 
it uses God's formal name. yud heh Yehoveh. That's right. The decree calls out God by His name. It doesn't use the generic word Lord or Adonai. So it actually reads, Yehoveh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And many text-critical scholars respond, this can't be the actual decree. Because how would Cyrus know the God of Israel's formal name? And some scholars will then also point to Isaiah 45 and point out that Cyrus will do the Lord's bidding, but Cyrus won't know God. See, this takes us back to one of the reasons that I brought up Daniel. Daniel was alive during the days of Cyrus. In fact, he was directly serving King Darius, who was subordinate to King Cyrus. And no doubt, this formal Persian royal royal document is in response to some Jewish delegation's formal petition for governmental permission to return to Judah and to rebuild their temple. It's entirely realistic to surmise that Daniel himself could have had a hand in crafting this Persian decree. I mean, obviously a king didn't write it himself. His staff did it. He just signed it. And since this directly involved the Jews and the most prominent and noteworthy and trusted Jew in the capital was Daniel. It's hard to imagine that Daniel was not involved in this in some way. This answers the question as to how we find God's formal name in a Persian document that was made under King Cyrus' name. And besides, the names of gods of various nations were well known. It wouldn't be strange that Cyrus would at least recognize the name of the God of the Jews. And as far as Isaiah's prediction that Cyrus wouldn't know me, know the God of Israel, that phrase means he wouldn't worship or honor that particular God. Not that he wouldn't recognize his name. Well, verse 4 starts out saying, Let every survivor be helped by his neighbor with items that would be helpful for the journey to Judah or in the temple restoration. Survivor is probably not a very good translation. The idea is that these are Jews who are staying behind. And verse 6 essentially says that the people obeyed the king's edict and gave those who were going to return to Judah all the items they would need. This is referring to the general population of Persia, Gentiles and Jews. So Gentiles were going to have a hand in building, or rather rebuilding, the temple in Jerusalem. And this is a principle that we will see carried out to the end of the book of Revelation. We first hear of this concept in Isaiah. In Isaiah 56.7 I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So it's not surprising that we find this thought as well in the book of Haggai. 
one of the prophets who prophesied during the time of Judah's of the Jews' return to Judah in Haggai 2, 6 through 9. For this is what Adonai Zebaot says. It won't be long before one more time I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will flow in and I will fill this house with glory, says Adonai Zebaot. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says Adonai Zebaot. The glory of this new house will surpass that of the old, says Adonai Zebaot. And in this place I will grant shalom, says Adonai Zebaot. And by the way, this is another of those prophecies that has happened and will happen again. So it is both in our past and in our future. Gentiles played a big role in rebuilding the temple in the final part of the 6th century BC and will play a big role in rebuilding the temple, the third temple, when the time comes. And I think that time is very, very near. Now King Cyrus in verse 7 orders that the still intact articles and vessels of gold and silver that were confiscated from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar and then used in Babylon in the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God were to be returned to the Jews. And a fellow named Mithridat, who was in charge of Persia's treasury, was assigned to carry out this order. And he did so. And of course... Such a large government with such an enormous bureaucracy as Persia's did so with a careful and recorded accounting. And thus we see a listing of the items in verse 10. But there's a problem with this list. The numbers don't add up. And even the wording used is ambiguous. Some say that the itemized list is correct but the final tally is wrong. Others say the final tally is right, but the itemized list has been corrupted. It's impossible to know. But then we again run into this mysterious fellow named Sheshbazar. And we're told that the treasurer turned this trove of temple implements over to him to take to Jerusalem. Now we talked about this man last week and said that many scholars, most actually, today believe that he is a different person from Zerubbabel, who for the longest time was thought to be just a different name for the same person. Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, same person. Further, Sheshbazar is said to be the prince of Judah. This title or office of prince has been very troubling to academics. Now, Sheshbazar is certainly a Babylonian name. And Zerubbabel seems to be Hebrew, but some say it's really Aramaic. I'm pretty sure it is Aramaic. The diplomatic language of the Persian Empire. In any case, are these two people or the two names for the same person? Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, there's a long listing of King David's descendants, obviously so that someday a member of David's royal line could be identified 
to continue on David's dynasty and to rule over Judah. And in this listing is someone called Shenazar, who could well be the same as Sheshbazar, especially since this person is listed as a as a relative of guess who Zerubbabel, his uncle, in fact. So this lends credence to the idea that indeed Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel were two different people. But if we understand that they were related, and that Shenazar is Sheshbazar, and these kind of name juxtapositions happen all the time in the Bible. It's common. Then calling him the prince of Judah makes a whole lot more sense. Scholars have had a tough time with this designation of prince because it is certainly not a title that the Babylonians or the Persians used to describe the administrators of those 127 districts that formed the empire. However, in Hebrew the word is Nasi. And in fact, that is the usual designation given to a tribal chief of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it seems to me that Sheshbazar had to be Jewish of the line of David. This makes great sense and it is also known to be the norm that the Persians operated their empire in a highly sophisticated and enlightened way. And whenever possible, they appointed a member of the royal family of the indigenous people of a district as that district's administrator. It tended to keep that district happier and a lot less likely to rebel. And so immediately... When we open Ezra chapter 2, suddenly the leader of the group going back to Judah becomes Zerubbabel. No explanation for the change is given. It is rather apparent that the uncle, his uncle, as listed in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, Sheshbazar must have turned over the reins to his nephew very soon after he received back the temple items. Under what circumstances, we just don't know, so it's not even worth guessing at. But there is one interesting piece of information we shouldn't overlook. In the final verse of chapter 1, it says that this first group went from Babylon to Jerusalem. So the gathering place where this first group of 50,000 left from was Babel. And likely... That's where the leadership of the Jews lived, at least in the 530s BC. Later on, by Esther's time, it seems that the remaining Jewish leadership, with Mordecai being the most prominent, had moved their headquarters to Shushan, Susa. Why? Because while Babel was the king of the Babylonian Empire, Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. So our ongoing history and geography lessons are starting to pay off as these decisions and all these people movements and locations, the time frames of Daniel and Esther and now Ezra all start to make sense in the real world. Next time we're going to take up chapter 2 and see who decided to go 
and try to understand how they were categorized into named groups.